Welcome to the David Suisa podcast. I'm David Suisa today. Very happy to have my dear friend for a long time, Gary Wexler. Gary and I were competitors in the ad agency business in the 80s. And then uh, he got some sanity knocked into him and decided to sell his very successful company and move into the Jewish world. And he became the national marketing guru of the Jewish world until he decided to become a professor at the Annenberg School. And that's what he's been doing for the past few years. But he's still very involved with everything that's going on in the Jewish world. Gary, it's great to have you here today. It's great to be here. And wait, you missed the best story, David. What is the best story? Okay, so you and I were in our 30s, and we were competitors. And I kept hearing the name Suisse, and I just assumed that it was some Italian guy or Latino guy. And I kept hearing the name Wexler. And clearly you knew it was a Jewish guy. Anyway, but I didn't know, and I thought I was the only serious Jew in the L.A. advertising business. And one day somebody says to me, you know, Suisse is Jewish. And all of a sudden I said, Moroccan, oh my God. I called you up, you may not remember this. And we went to Chinois. We went to Chinois afterwards, but wait, I called you up and I told the receptionist, I said, tell him Gary Wexler is on the phone. And I knew you knew who I was because you would win an account, I would win an account, you'd lose to me, I'd lose to you, whatever it was. You get on the phone with a suspicious voice. And I said, Suisa? And you said, yes, I said, how Jewish are you? <laughs> and you said to me, very. I said, we need to meet each other. And that's how this relationship began. You know what? I forgot that, that anecdote, but I'm still very Jewish. Yes. I'm, I'm glad I answered too. that yeah, way. Right. That, was, that was very cool. So we've had a really long, fascinating relationship. We've gone through so, we've been in so many meetings. And I sort of ended up catching up to you because I sold my ad agency, you know, a decade after you. And I transitioned full-time into the Jewish world. Wait, wait, wait. How many times did you and I try to go into business together? <laughs> oh, let's, my God. Let's talk about that. We ended up doing it yes. just by being in all these meetings. Right, it right was, exactly. It happened de facto. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things I think we, we should do today is just have a, a freewheeling conversation on some of the things that are going on in, in the Jewish world, especially with Wait, Israel. I want to say something first. Hold on a second. I miss you. Okay, I don't see you as much as we used to oh, see man, each other. Yeah, like we that. don't get together like yeah. we used to. You've become this very important person in the Jewish <laughs> world. <laughs> okay, yes. And uh, so, uh, how long has it been since I've been to a great Shabbat dinner at your house? When was the last time I saw your mother, who I love? You know what? You're you're very big part of our family. I mean, seriously, yeah. oh my, you know, you are one of our favorite Ashkenazi. I'm so glad to hear this. I'm very yes. proud of By the way, title. Gary, you should know for any listeners, he's the greatest Shabbat guest. <laughs> 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 you always have something to say. Whenever you come to our yeah. house, I feel a sense of relief. And I, I don't have to carry the conversation. And you have the I best know. Shabbat dinners. So yeah, the only thing with Gary is, you know, sometimes if he just veers into a political conversation, I have to kick him under the table. But uh, you are definitely a good schmoozer. So, you know, you have a, a, a deep background in marketing and branding. You have a background in a lot of the buzzwords we hear today all the time. You know, just this morning I saw this big thing in a, in a paper on the importance of branding and how the new generation now talks about their own personal brand. And when, you talk, when, I, when I speak to professionals about Israel, when I speak to members of Knesset, when I... We're always talking about the Israel brand, and they're using words that have that you've been working with for for decades, right? So I think we can start 
that way in terms of what are the issues you're seeing from your own marketing uh, lens? Okay. You so know? first of all, you must have read the New York Times lead magazine, the lead article in the Sunday magazine, which was about branding, because I think that's what you were referring to, which I read with great interest. So the first thing I have to say to you is, I don't know if you know, but I own a domain that I have never activated called the bullshit of branding, <laughs> um, because I'm not a big believer in branding. Um, I think we have the way it's seen the today, way that the empty it's seen, way it's seen the today. way that it's like everything is a brand. You know, there's now a personal brand that people have. There's a business brand. There's a product brand. Everything is the discussion of the brand. There's branding. Architecture is the methodology. There's a million agencies set up. It's become a multi-billion-dollar business. Branding, branding, branding. Yet we're in a society where everybody says so much information is moving around that we're looking at reality TV shows and we're trying to understand reality and what's real, branding is not real. Branding is an image that you create, bottom line, to sell something. So there are so many instances where branding creates these images that people buy. Look at David. When I owned the ad agency, I used to say to my staff, let's remember something, guys. We toil in a palace of bullshit. That's what we do. So let's at least be honest about it. Yeah, you know, there's Words are really important. And one of the words I loved was personality, like when I dealt with clients mm -hmm. and so forth, because uh, I had clients who would come in and they'd spend most of their energy on building a great product and very little marketing. And I would tell them, you are in a perfect position because usually clients do the opposite. They skimp on the product, they don't have a great product, and they're hoping that marketing is gonna cover up for a product problem, which, Branding is a, 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 a demonstration of that, which is, I don't have a great product, I'm going to lead with my brand. But what you're saying is there's no substance inherent Ah, so in branding, let's, let's right? relate this to the Jewish world and to Jewish life because there is so much significance in this. I left the advertising business to go into the nonprofit world and also into the Jewish world because I wanted to do something authentic with my skills. So the first three years that I was doing this, I felt really good about it. But then what happened was the whole concept of branding entered into the Jewish world, I remembered. And I thought to myself, we now have admitted to ourselves that our substance isn't strong enough, that we've got to find a way to brand the substance to be able to make it authentic. But I think what we did was we veered away from the depth of who we really are and what we're doing. I'll never forget, one of my Chabad clients was into branding, and I said to them, are you telling me? that what you believe isn't strong enough, and now you need to create a brand around that? So, so there's a, maybe a yetzerah around branding and the idea of, you know, uh, something for nothing. It's very seductive, the idea of, you know, you go to Las Vegas, I put $100 on a blackjack, and I win $100. I've, I've won $100 for no work. There's a little bit of the yetzerah with branding, which is this illusion, this seductive idea that I can make up for a product that's not all the way there through branding, I can just get people. I don't have to do the hard work of getting better teachers for my school. I don't have to do the hard work of really improving my school, my organization, if I have branding. Am I, am I exaggerating? No. Synagogues used to come to me because they wanted marketing. This is even before they were saying branding. And I would study the synagogue, and I would say to them, 
how strong is your rabbi? How strong is your own philosophy and what you folks are doing? Because I need to be able to know what the substance is to be able to build your brand. And very often, those elements were not strong enough. And I said, it doesn't make any difference how deeply I market this. If you don't have the substance inside of your institution, it's not going to work know, and you're it, wasting it, your money. It's interesting. There's a, one of the rabbis I know in town who has the strongest brand, one of the strongest uh -huh. brands in town, never uses the word branding ever. He never even talks about mm -hmm. it. He doesn't even talk about marketing. And he's known for visiting the sick. And I mean uh -huh. visiting the sick. I mean... 10 times, 15 times a week, nonstop. He's known as somebody who builds relationships mm -hmm. nonstop. His branding is making 50 calls a day, uh, calls for birthdays, yeah. just complete, total devotion to his flock. And ironically, uh, that's his branding campaign, which is his activities. And, and the branding just comes out. Comes out of, of it because it's activity. authentic. It flows out of it. Look at, let's also establish, there is a difference between the branding of a for-profit product and service and the branding of a cause or of the Jewish people or of a nonprofit. The difference is, is the purpose bottom line for the branding of a product or a service is profit. The purpose of branding a cause is that in the end, you're supposed to be doing something authentic to change people's lives, to change a community, to change the world. There's something very real about that. And the nonprofit world and the Jewish world has strayed off into saying, we've got to do this like the business world. Mm -hmm. That's not true. That's, that's really interesting you say that because my, my daughter was running for office in high school, I think, and then she wanted some help with the ad campaign. And we, we ended up with something so funny. And I said to her, I said, oh my God, you just reminded me of something I'd forgotten. In the for-profit world, when every car is just about the same, when, when the soft drinks are just about the same, when there's so much product parity, uh, your personality becomes a point of difference. So I said to her, you just reminded me of something I, 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 I lost, which is the fact that in the for-profit world, not in the non-profit world, in the for profit world, you can use advertising, call it branding or marketing, and if you project yourself in a way that's got a sense of humor, it's got people will like you because of your personality. If you try to transfer that to the, to the non-profit world, where the issues are so much deeper, mm -hmm. where you know selling a synagogue is not selling a baby food or a soft drink or a Doritos chips, right? It's so much serious. I think there's a mistake that can be made if you try to take those for-profit principles. A hundred percent, and this is what nonprofits try to do today. Bring people in from business, they know the answer. Turn to our lay people who are big donors and they have lots of money and they run businesses, they have the answers. They don't. This is a completely different animal. Let me say something to you. You and I have a commonality here. We both have veered off the path of the businesses that were strictly f about products and services and gone into the Jewish world and into cause things. That's because at our core, we're dedicated to this. Therefore, we handle this very differently and we see a different reality here. We are in this to do the real job, not to do the surface job of branding. And I want to add a couple things to this. Clients come to me today, the ones that I still handle, and there's the big three that they always come with. Gary, we need branding, 
We need social media. We need storytelling. Those are the big three. My answer to them is, those are the of course things. Of course you need to do branding. Of course you need to do social media. Of course you need to do storytelling. Now let's look at what really has to happen and what is the challenge. You need to succeed in what you're doing. What is it you're trying to accomplish and what is it really going to take from critical thinking, from ideas, from engagement to make that happen? And then, of course, three of social media and branding and storytelling will follow that. But instead, they switch this paradigm around and they make those big three the things they think they're supposed to do and they leave out the big challenge and the real critical thinking that has to happen. Well, I think the one area of business that can translate well to nonprofit is the area of leadership training. Mm -hmm. I was in a seminar recently and everything I heard in that seminar could apply to any Jewish organization. And that's not marketing, that's not branding, that is substantial management principles that any head of a Jewish organization can pick up, and I would love to see more of that kind of uh, leadership training. But I do want to jump to create... Wait, what is yeah. leadership, David? Leadership is the people who know how to have the ideas and then create the motivation for people to follow. Well, let me give you the, the definition they gave us yeah. at the seminar. Uh, leadership is not a role. It's an activity. Very good. Very good. Okay. It's an activity. Let's go on to the next thing. You yeah. and I could go into each of these things for hours we and do. bore the hell out of all these people. Go ahead. Oh, we won't. But uh, the, the, the whole issue of creativity is something you and I have talked about in the past where, um, you know, creativity is when you stick your neck out in a board meeting and people just are tempted to just chop your neck off, right? Because it's a lot easier to hide behind jargon and talk about research and talk about words like strategy and just you know play it safe than it is to come up with a real idea for an organization, right? Um, so talk to me about that because you've had so many experiences with Jewish organizations and what is it about our world that sort of you know limits creativity? Okay, so first of all, let me say, the two best books to read on creativity that I have my students in the master's program at USC Annenberg read in, when I teach the creative classes is the first one is Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. The other one is Startup Nation because both of these are based on real, authentic creativity, in-depth, risk-taking, intelligent, with all the anxiety that goes on with it. Um, my belief is that today, in a digital-driven world, we are in a society where creativity is the absolute king. The economy has changed, the world has changed, globalization has come forward, and creativity and the creation of the idea is absolutely in the lead. And organizations and people that don't do this in businesses are the ones that are becoming irrelevant. I want to switch this to Israel for a second. Do you want to say anything back on I, this? I wanted to say something back on that because when I heard you speak right now, I was thinking, can creativity play a role? And what role could it play in the you know $20,000 question of how do we keep the millennial generation more involved with their Judaism? What kind of role can creativity play in that? Okay. So let me, let, let's, let's go to Israel and let's go to the American Jewish community. I want to go to Israel first because okay. I find it far more interesting than the American Jewish community. Oh. Okay. Uh, and I guess I've just said that publicly. 
I had an extraordinary revelation in Israel about two years ago. I was in Tel Aviv, and a friend of mine took me to the 50th anniversary of the Batsheva Dance Company. And Ohad Naharin, who is, has become a world-class choreographer based in Israel, raised on a kibbutz, um, is celebrated globally for his modern dance technique. What they performed was Echad Miyodea. I had never seen it before, and I was completely stunned and blown away, and it was such a moment of learning. Let me tell you about this. They took the song Echad Miyodea, and he choreographed a modern dance to it. So at its core, it was inspired by Jewish tradition. Yet the modern dance that came out of it was modern dance world-class for the world. All of a sudden, it hit me what was going on here. In Israel, first of all, because they speak Hebrew, because it's the culture of the nation, as much as we like to say they don't know anything about Judaism, they know it in a different way. It seeps in in a very different way as part of their daily existence. They're speaking the language. They're moving to a Jewish calendar. There's things going on that, that provoke conversation. But different from the American Jewish community, he had to create a dance, just like Israel does with all of its output, that competes on the world stage. As a result, the excellence is pushed because they're competing on the world stage. The American Jewish community, we don't have to compete on the world stage. We only have to deal with inside our community, with inside, very often, a shtetl mentality. And as a result, our output is not pushed to excellence. It's only pushed to the consumption of a community within a larger nation. And so Israel has become an exceedingly creative place, crossing creativity with Jewish content, with thinking, with the Jewish people's output. And if you were to ask me today to redefine Zionism, I would say that for today, Zionism equals creativity. That's what's coming out, and it's exceedingly important. And I think one of the reasons that we are having a rough time in America is, and I know this because I have worked with many, many Jewish organizations, they don't want to take the risk of creativity. It is uncomfortable to depart from the path. Do you think we're starting to lose our sense of humor? Oh, God, yes. Absolutely. As American Jews, absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 there's something about, I don't know, that I'm, this new America that we're in, mm -hmm. things just are not that humorous. Everything's things serious. aren't humorous, and you're, but afraid to, you're afraid to make a joke because everything is so hyper-political today that if you say the wrong thing that makes people laugh, then you're labeled as a racist, you're labeled as this, you're labeled as that. And so uh, I think it's actually stultified the ability to be funny. Well, even if you look at some really wonderful, noble initiatives on social justice that are really wonderful, you know, um, at the end of the day, it's it's not enough. We gotta we're losing some of the the joy, the fun, the humor, where we don't have to take ourselves too seriously. And in in, in a strange way, the more we're taking ourselves seriously, the more we seem to be losing the the new generation. So I'm just thinking out loud here because it's always, you know, the Jewish Journal. I meet with tons of Jewish organizations, and it's always the number one question. You know, we've been around for thousands of years. It would be a real shame to sort of end it <laughs> here in America and have, 
you know, Judy have the Jewish population just be orthodox, for example, and the vanishing Jew, like Alan Dershowitz wrote. So we're always talking about how do you engage a generation that doesn't feel they want to engage in uh, with Judaism, and how do you do that? So that's why I bring up humor, you know? And I know you've dealt with this, guy. I've dealt with it a lot. You know? You know? And there's no one answer. There's no silver bullet. No. And everybody's doing their own thing, which is great. And you have, you know, spiritual communities like Ikar and Eshuva, mm-hmm. and you have them on the uh, East Coast as well. There's a, really a great outpouring of genuine effort to engage the new generation, even with social justice causes and so forth. But at the end of the day, the current model in the mainstream Jewish world of the synagogue model it's just not going to cut it. I want to respond to this because it's a, it's a real deep question here. First of all, since I've been teaching and have not been as active in the Jewish world, my classrooms are very global. There's Americans in them of every single ethnic background and religious background. And then I have a whole group of Chinese students every semester, Middle Eastern Muslim students every semester, students from India, students from Latin America, and students from Europe. I mix the teams up so that they're global. One of the things I've seen is the diversity produces this buzz. It produces this electricity that leads to a lot of creative output. In the Jewish world, what we have done is we have separated ourselves into our own tribes, and we are not harnessing the diversity of Jewish life. You got the liberals here, the Orthodox here, the Sephardim here, the Ashkenazim here, the older people here, the younger people there. Everything is divided so that there's something for everybody, but we don't bring the 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 basket of that diversity together to mix those flavors together to create an incredible stew. But but isn't that human nature, Gary? I mean, people like to be with like-minded people, you know? Uh, Sephardic guy likes to daven with Sephardic melodies that he grew up with. Isn't that sort of a natural state of being? Yes, but on the other hand, let's go back to leadership. You talked about leadership. What risks do you take and what visions do you have for leadership? We're all Jews. I mean, let's be really honest here. And, you know, you hear in Los Angeles, oh, that's a Persian school. That's where the Israelis hang out. This is where the Americans are. And then there's all this tension between all of this. It's really the opposite of how we should be. We are all the Jewish people. We need to find that commonality between us because we are all in a very compromised position today as to the engagement of the next generation of Jews. And I really think a lot of our success is going to lie in the Jewish people coming together and pulling this diversity of Jewish life together and making it really interesting and compelling. Well, you're right about leadership because it's, it's the leaders that can ignite the curiosity gene and the interest of meeting Jews who are not like you uh, and to transcend the human nature because that's the Jewish way. What are you trying to do with the Jewish Journal? Right. You're bringing in all these voices Mm -hmm. from across to be able to say, this is our community. Isn't this an extraordinary... Look, at no. as much as I have problems with a lot of organized Jewish life, I don't have problems with the Jewish people. We are a fascinating people. And we have not... 
really harnessed that fascination. Israel has. When you go there, you feel it, and you can feel this panoply of cultures and what's going on, from the food to the creative opera to the dance to the clothing to the fashion to the theater, everything that's happening there that makes the place so fascinating. Here, we tend to divide it all. It's, it's interesting because I, I wrote a piece this week. I call it the goosebumps when you know you try to keep things in, in context. So Israel... You're yearning for 19 centuries to return home to Zion, and it's hard to look at Israel without keeping that in mind. And I, you know, I call it the goosebumps, and even the Jewish story is full of goosebumps. But in the Twitter world that we live in, everything is seen in isolation. So every issue is seen in isolation, whether it's a thing that's happened today in politics with, with Trump, whether it's the occupation, whether it's this problem with the Haredi, or whether it's this issue or one or another, this issue or not. You know, we see things in isolation as opposed to the big picture. You know, when I'm in Israel, I see the big picture all the time. Yeah. Because I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, they got, they're surrounded by 100,000 missiles. And why are they having so much fun on the street? There's a real sense of losing the big picture in the world we live in. Yeah, you know? I, I, exactly. And I think we've lost that in a lot of Jewish life. Um, look, at, I would like to be able to take Jewish life, put it inside of a, of a big ball and shake it up and say, let's see what's going to come out of this shaking. But people hold on to their corners in this community, mm -hmm. and they hold on to their egos, and they hold on to what they believe they believe in and everything, and I think we need a real shaking up. Also, I, I think there's certain things are seen as being too sentimental. They're not cool. It's not hip. Such as? Um, it's just, I mean, the whole schmaltzy idea of returning home to Zion after 19 centuries, the creation of Israel. I was in Yom Atzmaut in Israel a few weeks ago. Uh -huh. And one of the things I noticed is all these people dancing on the street, and I didn't feel any sarcasm at all. I'm seeing these like young girls dancing, and they really mean it. There's nothing hip. Mm -hmm. they, they really mean it. They're dancing for real. And I usually don't like crowds, but I was just blown away by the whole innocence of the scene. Thousands of people at Rabin Square, and they, they just really meant it. And I just didn't feel that energy here. I think here we're more self-aware, if you will. I didn't feel any self-awareness. They were just letting it rip, mm -hmm. right? And I was very moved by that, that sort of purity. And that, that was the goosebumps for me. Yeah. Look, at, I get those goosebumps in Israel. You get what I'm talking about Yes, here? I have, get it really well. But, you know, also there's, there are other populations in Israel, as we're talking oh, yeah. about, it, that do not join in on this. Jews who right, are Right, there's the hip Jews in Tel Aviv. Exactly. They and, weren't and there that night. But, but I want to pull out something from what you just said. You know, you walk down Rothschild Street in Israel. People are willing to just let themselves go. People are willing, you know, to sing and to dance and to, you know, you see also Americans, we're much more conservative about all that. We don't let ourselves go in the same way. We're not singing in the same way. We don't do all this. My fear is that in Israel it's getting a lot very westernized, and I hope that they don't lose that. Um, because that they don't get too hip. Yeah. It's, it's one, you know, look, <laughs> it's so funny that you say about hip. Hip does not equal authentic. Hip is an image like branding, mm. you know. So I think this gets back to where we started here mm -hmm. between, you know, what is branding? You know, hip is the brand you try to create for yourself as if you don't have all sorts of other things going on in your life. Well, it's so interesting you bring that up because 
the, the homeland that you waited 1,900 years to come back to, how more authentic can it be? So the authenticity is just baked in. It's built into Israeli society by the very fact that they're walking on that land. So I, I want to say we something We don't have that this. here. All right. So I have a lot of Muslim students from the Middle East, um, and I am very close to all of them. And one of the reasons I'm close to, I think there's several reasons I'm close to all of them. As a Jew, I feel very close to Muslims. We have a lot in common with them. I've been to their weddings. I understand more of what goes on at their weddings than when I go to a Christian or a Catholic wedding. Um, they've invited me to their homes, and there's a lot of similarities there. So they feel free to approach me and ask me about Israel, because I put myself right out there, that I consider myself a Zionist, I spend time in Israel, and it's becomes a very interesting conversation that I have with them because when they start to ask me about Israel and they start to question certain things, I explained to them, I said, there's things you don't understand that you don't get out of the media. I said, why we fight for this country? I said, first of all, I said, I can give you the whole history and everything else, but let's go back to the fact that we returned from all over the world and for the first time in thousands of years, the Jewish people are together again in a place. I said, we're not going to walk away from that and we're not going to abandon that. The other thing is we've revived our language. We've revived the culture around that language. Poetry, music, dance, theater, all of those things. I said, which are so deep and so precious. I said, you folks don't understand that part of it. You only understand the conflict. But there is so much, many deeper cultural aspects of it that we are attached to that has given us a new life. What was the reaction? Their mouths drop open, and they want to know. And then almost all of them come to me and say, will you take me with you at some point? We want to go to Kuwaiti students, Saudi students, Lebanese students, Kurdi students. They come to me, Libyans, and they're all fascinated because I think I put it out there with love and authenticity and also the fact that we have an extraordinary relationship that's authentic as teacher and students. So they see sudden, suddenly somebody that they have th thought is an enemy, but they say, no, this is our teacher, and it's the same thing. I see them as students I love. And so it doesn't I'm, undermine the other narrative as well. This is just... No, it doesn't at all. Your narrative. It doesn't at all. No, it doesn't at all. And so we have a lot of interesting discussion. I feel like I'm almost doing my own personal, uh, per per personal um, you know, uh, the, uh, information about Israel um, with these people. Yeah, you know, when I hear you talk, I'm not hearing talking points from a leaflet. I'm not hearing arguments. Mm -mm. And I'm just not hearing some of the propaganda or some of the typical Asbara things that we hear about. I just heard a, just a compelling you know, description of what it means or what Israel means to the Jewish people. And it seems to me that that, that needs to come out more. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think that, so. okay, let's talk about, you and I are both marketer guy, marketing guys. Let's not even talk about branding. But we're also both, we also both left that path to go into something that was close to our soul and our heart. You and I understand certain things coming from these two worlds. Um, and I think if we look at p talking points, it's almost as artificial as branding. We need mm -hmm. to put it out from the soul. Yeah, that's beautifully said. I mean, the yeah. soul of Israel is this, this idea of coming home. Yeah. After 19 centuries. And I, we centuries. don't have to be embarrassed about that. It's right. extraordinary, and it's authentic, and it's real, and it's emotional. And, you know, there's moments that it can bring tears to your eyes. And with uh, all the, the craziness and all the flaws and all the mistakes, it doesn't take away from the extraordinary story 
whether you want to judge it or not. It's just the story. I tell my kids all the time this idea of, you know, 19 centuries is a number I can't even comprehend. Mm. I was thinking, you know, you imagine after 400 years, I can imagine one of these kids saying to his parents, let's give it up. It's not going to happen. And then, you know, I wrote this this week, yeah. and then 400 years later, let's give it up. How do you keep hoping? Like my grandfather in Morocco, you know, he had a great business in Casablanca, and, you know, Israel was born. He took off. Mm-hmm. And he kissed the ground. He went home because it was in the text. It was in the holy text. It was in the, the prayers he did every uh-huh. day. It was, in the, it was in the Seder, the Haggadah, yeah. right? So how do you yearn for something, Gary, for 19 centuries? It's, it's, it's one of the key facts that we forget, we overlook. Yeah, but we also have to realize there's a lot of Jews that— <coughs> Yes, we yearned for it as Jews, but there were a lot of Jews that it just didn't penetrate. My parents, when I first started getting involved with Israel stuff in college, my parents were born in America of immigrant parents. I still remember my mother saying to me, but we're Americans. Mm -hmm. Why does this interest you? We're Americans. Are you going Mm -hmm. to give that up? So there was, you know, there are many different populations there. That, that we're not understanding it in the same way that your grandfather did. Well, we're feeling it now because, yes. you know, another big issue is particularity versus universalism. And to be able to, to manage both is very complicated. And there's something that uh, is a little offensive. Some people don't. S- the idea of, uh, you know, being proud of your, your Judaism is a tribal idea for many people. Mm-hmm. That it could offend their non-Jewish friends. Yeah, but let's look first. at the reverse of it. Why is it so hip to be able to be proud of other diversities and to support all of that? I mean, if we look and see what's going on in the media today and everything, diversity is celebrated. But yet when it comes to Judaism as part of that diversity, it's not celebrated in the society in the same way. Why do you think that is? Oh, okay. I think there's many reasons. I think, first of all, the celebration of diversity is looking at people that have been the in the in the underclasses of society and Jews are perceived as being successful mm. therefore that gets attached to it but it's 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 not it's not reality right if you're successful then you don't deserve my sympathy especially if the image is sort of white western powerful yeah. successful just like Israel is so Jews uh you know, I don't get. Plus, the idea of Judaism is not just a religion; it's a people, it's a nation, it's it's a culture. I mean, unlike it's not like Christianity or Islam, mm-hmm. and I think that adds a little bit of confusion to the whole picture, which is what what does being Jewish mean? But in America, I think the word Jewish is still kind of cool. Mm-hmm. You know, just from all the comedians we had, and just from all the Hollywood and so forth, and the public image, just the word Israel has become a dirty word. Where does that come from? I mean, is it just as simple as the the bad news that people see in the media and we're the occupiers okay. and we're the... So you and I have a different sense of this. Can we be t- totally honest with oh, each other? Yeah. Okay. So, first of all, you are... I am on the liberal side and the left side. You are on... You're more in the middle, more towards the right. Okay? So... First of all, my feeling is, is let's go back to the conflict. The Jewish people are so creative in everything we do. We're not creative in organized Jewish life, but we're creative out there in the world. We have to apply that same creativity to this conflict and start looking to solutions to this conflict. Neither side is going away. 
and we have not applied our creativity here. And that is clear um, in the way that we are dealing with this. On the other hand, I want to say something about BDS, who I think is an exceedingly creative movement, and we have not been as creative on our side of telling our story. The things that they do from the time that they did the Mavi Mamara, which was the boat from Turkey, I mean, that was a brilliant strategy in what they did. Recently, they just did something else I can't remember. I watch what BDS does, and I'm thinking to myself, these people take creative risk to get their point across. I mean, okay, Gaza. Now, let's look and see what they're doing at Gaza every Friday, the protests. I brilliant. mean, they, it's brilliant. They know how to capture the media. We're going to go and take back Palestine. We're going to walk through that fence and we're going to reclaim that land. I mean, what an extraordinary story for the media in the way that they put that. We don't apply our creativity in the same way. Although in telling I, have our to, story. I have to interrupt you there because for the first time ever, they sort of betrayed their intention of taking back Israel. Oh, I read, I read what you said. You're 100% you know? correct. And, and in that you are sense, 100% correct. you would think that that would be a PR blunder. But what you're saying is that the optics are so powerful because they still look like victims. They still look like victims. They know how to do this. They know how to do this brilliantly. Look, 15 years ago, I had a grant from the Ford Foundation to work with their grantees in Israel in the Jewish and Arab sector towards building a marketing, um, some sort of a, of, of a marketing consulting for them. One of the organizations that I went to visit was this organization called Itija. And I met a person there named Amir Mahul, who I think has since been in jail for being a spy for Syria. He told me at the time, this was before BDS started, what their plan was. Everything that he said has come to fruition. This was deeply planned and deeply thought about um, as to what they were doing um, and very strategically thought about. We haven't done this in the same way. Look, at you and I talked earlier, David, about branding beyond the conflict, which is what um, Israel branding tried to do. You can't bland beyond the conflict when the conflict's on the front pages of the newspaper every day and it's in the news. You have to figure out how you creatively frame this conflict. We just ignored it as Jews and said, we're going to talk about, you know, the startup nation. Well, that's great, and yes, it's true, but the whole world is still focusing on the conflict. Well, let me tell you my concern, Gary. Um, I think the, the enemy, and I consider Palestinian leaders who've rejected peace plans in the past, who betrayed their own people and who are corrupt, I consider them you know, an enemy of Israel, who are anti-Zionist. I think they see that the conflict and the occupation has strangled Israel uh, in terms of its public image around the world. And why? what interest do they have to unstrangle us? Um, and I think they like it just the way it is right now because of everything you're saying, because it's the albatross around Israel's neck. And I just think there's certain things in life that you can't control. As much as I would love to have a peace plan that's accepted, as much as I would love to end the occupation, as much as I would love for the two-state solution to happen, if the other side doesn't want it, it just ain't going to happen. So no matter how creative we get here in America, it's still at the mercy of what the parties can accomplish in Israel. Let me throw something back at you. 
when Herzl wrote Der Judenstaat, every single obstacle was in his way for the Jewish people to create a nation. And we managed to do it with every single thing against us. We could manage to figure our way out of this conflict, but we don't have the desire to do it. I think there is a whole lot of forces on the Jewish side that want to keep this status quo. Well, we got hardened. There's no doubt from the days when there was huge support. I think we got hardened for a number of reasons after the big proposal by Ehud Barak, uh, the second Intifada came, after we pulled out of Gaza, the 10,000 rockets came. We have a friend in common, Gary, uh, Michael Oren. Yes. And I have such deep respect for him. And he said to me something I never forgot, I think about a year ago. He said, David, we're going to have to ram a state down their throat. Down whose throat? The, the Palestinians. The Palestinians. Yeah. We're going to have to ram a state down their throat. He says, the only way it's going to happen because they love things just the way they are. We're on the defensive. We're getting bashed by the whole world community. They're getting billions of dollars in aid thanks to the occupation. So there's an argument to be made there. So let me say, I'm not going to refute Michael because he's brilliant and he's far more knowledgeable and intelligent and has a lot more information on this than I ever will in my lifetime. So I have to listen to this um, in what you're saying. But I also think we're going to have to ram a stake down the throat of the Jews and the right-wing Jews as well. Um, oh, it's hard for I, sure. I, I think there are two stakes right. that are going to have to be – and you're saying down their throat. I mean, we're thinking something else in this process that we're not going to say. Um, but I think there's two sides. Well, that I look, look at you've, for, we've there got, are 100,000 Jews yes. outside yeah. of the sort of what they call the, you know, uh, the blocks, outside yeah. the settlement blocks, 80 to 100,000. And that's a real, real problem. Now, some of them could be you know, enticed to come back and settle and we can, you know, they can pay them. But some of them are gonna stay in a future Palestine. And I think that's what Michael meant. You know, we, we just, we gotta just make it happen unilaterally because it will never, they're incapable of signing an agreement that says this is the end of the conflict. Uh, Mika Goodman, who I interviewed mm -hmm. here a few weeks yeah. ago, has an amazing new book. Yeah, I know. Oh my God, and you know you yeah. know him well. Yeah. I mean, uh, Catch 67, it's yeah. brilliant. It's a deep philosophic take that incorporates all the complications of the conflict. Mm -hmm. And he says just, you know, a little bit of peace, a little bit of peace, it's, it's really a... Uh, you know, I, ha I have to say something about this. And I'm not disagreeing with you here, what I see going on in my classroom, when, to, as a matter of fact, tonight I'm having dinner with one of my Palestinian students um, who I've become very friendly with. He's Palestinian-American, and uh, he's worked in the refugee camps, and he's pretty radical. Um, but we found a really good relationship with one another and respect each other. And I think one of the keys to this is we've got to see the humanity in one another, and we've got to start having exchange and talking. But they've with been doing this for 30 years, Seeds of Peace. So many organizations, Gary, have tried to do this, and it hasn't percolated up to the top, to the corrupt leaders. No, this is, I, I'm not disagreeing with you there. You know, you know, I'm not disagreeing, but we each have to do what we have to do on our own levels there. Yes. Um, you know, look at Israel's leadership isn't so non-corrupt either. Um, every other day, they've got somebody else that they're throwing in jail for something. Oh, the so, top levels yes. on both sides. So, so you it's know, we're, we're not innocent in any way in this situation. Look at maybe the people got to take over. <laughs> wow, you sound like uh, 
What do you sound like? Yeah, like, like Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bring up Marx right. now. Yeah. yeah. Oi. Anyhow, so what's bothering you the most right now in America? You're seeing what's happened. Um, I mean, yesterday, Trump uh, backed out of the Iran deal. Are you yeah. still engaged in these kind of issues, Gary? Look, I read about it all. Of course I am. I'm not so engaged in the discussion of it. Um, but well, I, what's bugging you in America right now? I mean, I can tell you what's bugging me. Oh, it's bothering, bothering yeah. you. I tell you what's bugging me. Go ahead. You Is go a, first. You know, uh, a Hispanic prom girl at a prom decided to wear a dress that had a yeah. Chinese yeah, uh, I read, take, I read that. and then it became a whole balagan on Twitter because somebody got you know, offended that it was cultural appropriation. Have we gone out of control? We have gone out of control. I, okay, so let me tell you what's, what bothers me in America. I walk. I walk miles every single day. And you used to walk with your dog that I I used loved. to walk with the dog. The dog's dead. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I love that dog. And I'm not allowed Gary. to get another one. My wife said no more dogs. Um, anyway, so here's what's bothering me as a walker and as a driver. I feel endangered by cars as I'm walking down the street. Now, wait, I'm going to get into a much deeper issue on all this. They could care less. They are disrespectful of me as a pedestrian. When you drive in L.A. now, people are so disrespectful. They're ramming you off the road. Okay, now this is going to sound like a huge leap to you, but I'm going to say it. This is a manifestation of the Trump era. We have a president who is such a bully and is so uncaring about human beings that I think the society has taken this as a sign of this is now an acceptable culture in America and a way to act. It frightens me to death as to, you look at, you know, there's an expression in Hebrew, this fish stinks from the head, okay? We have a president who I think stinks and as a result from the head, America is taking all sorts of directions from the way this man's personality is, and it is corrupting the morals of our society and the caring of human beings. But, you know, uh, George Bush was a really decent gentleman, and so was Obama. Do you really think that Americans were more polite during those 16 years? I recall enormous anger during the George Bush era as well as during the Obama era. I do, too, but I think it's worse now than it's ever been. Now, let me ask you something. Come on, you uh, drive the streets of L.A. Is it, is it more impolite now than it's ever been? No, I, I think the, the emotions are just so intense right now. I wanted to ask you uh, when you brought up the, the word Trump. By the way, it's incredible. We talked for so long without bringing up the T word. I know. Yeah, yeah. Mazaltov at my Shabbat table. <laughs> I have this running joke. I pick up a Lechaim. We've now yeah. we've now gone sixty minutes yeah. without saying the T word. I'm so proud of everybody at this table, Mazaltov. And I have something where I want to say about Trump well, and the Jews. You know, but go ahead. The, what I wanted to ask you is that it's become such an explosive word. Mm -hmm. I mean, just the word itself can destroy a Shabbat table. Do you have friends who voted for Trump? Uh, and how do you navigate this? Inc I mean, I have dear friends. When they say the word, they get physically ill, right? So you're obviously not at that extreme level. But how do you deal with that? How do you deal? How do you manage that? Well, you, you can be at a Shabbat table in your house. How do you manage the explosiveness Here's how I manage it. It's the same thing that gets back to when I was talking about celebrating the diversity of the Jewish people. I accept that people voted for him. You and have friends who have? Who yes, I have friends. Tell have me. Give me an example. I, my 
brother's wife voted for him. Oh, give me an example. How do you how do you talk to her? Because you've just said some incredible things about Trump. How do you how do you deal with it? I okay. So the first thing is is I try to be respectful about it and say these are their opinions. These are my opinions. If we're having a discussion, we're putting out our opinions here. But it doesn't reflect on how I value you as a person in my life. We have a disagreement here as to what we're saying. So she voted for a bully yes. who's really corroded the atmosphere in America, and you still respect her. Yes, yes. Look, at, I think we've got to learn to, uh, to, to, to deal with each other. Um, now, do you ask her, do you try to understand why she voted? Yes, I do. I and try what, to what understand. I try to, well, she had a very specific reason. She has a son who was going off to work in the embassy in Iraq, and she felt that Trump would keep him safer Mm. than Hillary Clinton would. Mm. So this was really generated by her love of her son. Mm -hmm. Um, And I understood. I didn't agree with her, but I understood what was motivating her. Any other Trump voters that you've come across? I have a student last week who we were we were at uh, at uh, at at Frank uh, what's his last name Luntz Luntz's house and I brought uh, twenty five students over there and it was extraordinary what a house and he uh, what a, what a, what an experience anyway he asked at the beginning he said did anybody in here vote for Trump and one of my students raised his hand who I deeply love um, and uh, he said he did and. Uh, I didn't say a word, and I haven't said a word. As a matter of fact, I spoke with him this morning. Never brought it up. Mm. Never brought it up. I thought this was his choice. Um, and what I was particularly proud of that night at Frank Luntz's house was that here were Republicans and Democrats. He had some other Republicans there. And we had the most wonderful civil conversation with one another and productive. And I thought, this is the way America should be. Is we should now. I know that I sound like I'm giving contrasting views here, um, from the way that I talked about the streets and the driving, and I think it comes from all that. But look at we're filled with conflict inside of us. Right, but streets are impersonal. Yeah. Whereas you sit down at a table or at lunch's house, then you can see each other face to face, which is a yeah. whole different. Yeah. And if I was dynamic. sitting at your Shabbat table and there were Trump supporters, I would be civil. I think the aspect of civil, respectful conversation. Mm-hmm absolutely takes precedence over anything else. Mm-hmm. And to listen to one another and to learn from each other, it's really important and that we have to do that as Jews between one another too. Yeah, I think it, when the attitude becomes, I absolutely cannot understand why you voted for that rude and crude bully, you know, that kind of stuff where you lose all sense of curiosity. To, I mean, in your case, your yeah. sister-in-law, that's fascinating. She yeah. had a real specific reason. Yeah. But this, this idea of instant judgment, which I guess I understand, but we should go beyond that. Yeah. 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 It's important that we have respect for one another, and we're losing that in this society. Did you learn more of that? Because you've you spent 20 years completely immersed in the Jewish world, working with hundreds of Jewish organizations. And for the past few years, you've been teaching at USC, and now you're dealing in a whole different context. What has that shift been like for you as a person? It's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. Um, you don't miss the, uh, the craziness of the Jewish world? I don't miss the... Okay, the, I have so many feelings about it as long as you've brought this up. First of all, let me explain why I exited from my role in the Jewish world. 
there were initially two reasons, and then I found a third one. The first reason was, was the recession happened. And I could not make the living during the recession that I was making with nonprofits, with the Jewish world. They simply didn't have the money in those years to pay for marketing, and it was the first thing that was slashed. So there was an economic reason, and I want to be perfectly honest about that. The second reason was I was turning 60 years old, and at the time, the reins of organizations and Jewish organizations were being turned over to a new generation. The things that people said to me about my age being in the marketing business coming out of leaders of Jewish organizations and nonprofits were astounding. And I thought to myself, in a world where we pride ourselves on tikkun olam and on respect and humanity, the fact that they could say these things to me about my age really betrayed what the values of the community were. And I thought to myself, I've got to distance myself from this because this is really, really upsetting. I mean, I had somebody who's head of a Torah institution who's very well known in his 30s say to me in a meeting when I was talking about marketing, he said, Gary, in our generation, marketing's about branding. I don't hear you saying a word about that. And I turned around to the rabbi who was head of the organization afterwards, and I said, were you going to allow that kind of public disrespect towards me at this point? And the answer was not satisfying. And I thought, you know what? It's time to back away from this. Now, a third reason became apparent as I started to teach and I was in a much more globalized world and also started to move back into the business sector and work with businesses and consulting and creativity and creative workshops. And also this startup that I'm in now with several of my students called The Red Table, which is really about unleashing creativity. The organized Jewish world was not willing to unleash its creativity, was not looking for sophisticated solutions. They were looking for, as I said to you, the big three. Give me branding, give me storytelling, give me social media. They weren't willing to go deeper. And I thought to myself, at this stage in my career, I am dedicated to creativity. I am dedicated to risk-taking. I'm dedicated to sophistication. And the Jewish world, organized Jewish world, isn't going to do this. For myself to be able to breathe, I have to walk away. And it was very sad to me. And there are certain aspects of it that I miss. And it's sad that I don't think the Jewish world's doing it. And still today, I see it happening in the same way. And so I had to do, distance myself from it professionally. Um, what is it that you miss? I miss, first of all, I miss the people, I miss the community sense of it. I miss that. I miss the sense of purpose. And those are the two things that, that I miss the most out of it. I, I, I miss being in Israel four times a year and playing a role there through what I was doing. That I miss deeply. Well, I have a, a beginning of a solution, by the Please. way. Please. Yeah. Write a creativity column, Jewish Journal. Let's talk about Share it. Share your words, absolutely. Let's talk about it. Okay, great. Uh, you heard it here first. So on that note, Gary, you're invited for Shabbat. We're going to talk Thank about you. that. And I'm so glad you can come in. I want to say something. Today. I want you to say it back to me, okay? David, I love you. Oh, I love you, brother. Okay. Yeah, I All love right. you, Gary. You're the best. Take care. Thanks again. Great. Okay,